You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. If you have your Bible, please open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We had the joy a couple of weeks ago of having Pastor Jason Harrison walk us through the first 11 verses, and we saw in this quintessential chapter on the resurrection both of Christ and of his believers, Pastor Harrison walked us through the primacy of the gospel. And the gospel is, as he said very eloquently and very clearly, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he appeared. And then Pastor Dale blessed us last week, although, uh, sorry, not sorry, we were down at the Ligonier Conference listening to John MacArthur and Steve Lawson and touring the grounds of Ligonier and standing in R.C. Sproul's office and all kinds of wonderful things. And security had to drag me out because I was trying to take his books and it <laughs> got awkward, but nevertheless. So Pastor Dale did a wonderful job of walking us through the middle portion of 1 Corinthians 15, which in effect, Paul is addressing some miscommunication, some misunderstanding, which is somewhat understandable in a somewhat post-pagan mentality of many of the Corinthians. And he says that Many of you are doubting the resurrection, of the resurrection of believers, he says, but there is a logical problem with that because if believers aren't resurrected, then it stands that Christ himself has not been resurrected. And if Christ has not been resurrected, that is the Achilles heel of our faith. He says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain and we are still in our sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised. And now today, as we continue working our way through we pick up at the next portion here at verse 35 where he addresses another problem, another question. The Corinthian believers were saying, okay, you're saying that the dead are indeed raised and we see that that is integral to our understanding of the gospel, that we serve a risen Savior. Then how are the dead raised? In what kind of body are believers raised at the resurrection? And that's the question that they're asking and that's the question that we aim to answer today as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. The title of this message is New and Improved. New and Improved. So let's pray and ask for God's grace. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. The name above all names, the name by which we must be saved. You said very clearly, Lord Jesus, in John 14, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is a right and good and clear proclamation because every other so-called Savior is dead. There is no shrine to commemorate your bones, Lord Jesus, because you rose from the dead, conquering death, and ascended to the right hand of God. And just as you rose from the dead, so will we. So, Lord, I pray, would you come and minister comfort to your people? Would you come and minister hope to your people? At a time where it seems that everyone is thinking about death in our culture, in fear, in trepidation, in uncertainty, Oh God, we have a strong and certain hope because we have a living hope. We do not serve a dead Messiah. We serve a living King. 
Help us to understand that with our minds, but oh God, help us feel that rightly with our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned in my introduction, it's no secret that one of the men that has had the greatest impact on my life is R.C. Sproul. And it was such a treat to be down at Ligonier in Orlando and to see some of the artifacts. And I've listened to hours and hours of R.C. Sproul's lectures and sermons. And so when you take in that much information from a teacher, you hear a lot of anecdotes and a lot of stories, and it's not always easy to recall at what point you heard it. And I remember one of, I don't remember in which lecture, but one of the most poignant stories that R.C. Sproul told was about the death of his mother. He said that one of his children, I don't know if it was R.C. Jr. or his daughter, had just been born. And they brought the child home, the newborn child home to meet grandma. And grandma was beaming and they spent the night there having food and holding the baby and all the wonderful things that happen when you bring a new baby home. And R.C. said that, you know, they finally retired for the evening and his mom went to her room and they went to their spare bedroom and they said he woke up in the morning and it was quiet and he went to her room and knocked on the door and no response and he said, I walked into the quiet of that room and I realized that my mother had expired in the night. And he said, it was interesting, the juxtaposition between the night before with all of its laughter and all of its joy and all of its life. And now she lay lifeless and silent and not breathing. And he said, it was in that moment, I knew it theologically, that the wages of sin is death, that we were, we were made to live forever, that death is part of a fallen order. Christians are no friend of death. He said, but I realized in that moment that death is the weird part. We're meant to be alive. We're meant to talk. We're meant to eat and worship and do what we're doing right now. He said, but as I saw my mother, who just hours before was full of life, I realized that death is the weird part. As a pastor, I've done a lot of funerals, probably done three to one more funerals than weddings, some for infants, some for elderly saints, and everything in between. One of the last things I did before I left Wisconsin was I served as a police chaplain, and the last call that I took was for a death notification, and we I stood in the living room and sat with the daughter who had been living with her elderly mother. And she had awoken much the same as R.C. Sproul. Her mother had gotten up to take her medication in the morning, fell over on the floor, and was gone. And a home that surely had been filled with talking and laughter and life and memories now was eerily silent as we sat in the living room waiting for the medical examiner with her mother's body 10 feet down the hallway, silent. And those words of Sproul as a Christian are ringing in my brain. This is weird. We're made to be alive. We're made to sing. We're made to talk. This is the weird part. This is the enemy that I long, long to be undone and overthrown is the enemy of death. And oh, how I can't wait for next Sunday when Pastor Jason Redberg gets to say, Oh, death, where is your sting? What good is a bee with no stinger? It's an annoyance. It's a joke. It's a mockery. I can't wait for that day. And that's exactly where by faith in Jesus Christ 
we go. We say here at Redeemer that the gospel changes everything. And indeed, the gospel that Jason preached in verses 1 through 11 about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and by union with him, indeed, the gospel changes everything, including our view of death. As Christians, we have a unique perspective on the inescapable foe known as death. We must face its ugliness, its pain, its fear, its decay, its separation, and seeming permanence. But we have something, something that we don't talk about nearly enough. We have the promise of resurrection. Like our Lord, our bodies, not just our souls, our bodies will live forever. We will be made new, and praise the Lord, we will be made improved. The main point that I'm going to argue for from our text is this. Union with Christ, meaning faith in him alone. Union with Christ guarantees every believer the blessing of a glorified body. So when you say something like that, it begs some questions. And there are three questions that we're going to seek to answer from the text. The first is this. Why would we be surprised? Why would we be surprised that the Lord could do such a thing? Let's look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So there's the antagonist. Paul does that all the time. If you read Romans, he's constantly raising the question from among his hearers and then answering it. He says, so some of you will hear me talk about the resurrection of Christ and the subsequent resurrection of his people, and then you're going to say, okay, fine, we're going to be raised from the dead, but how does that work? With what kind of body do they come? And look at his response in verse 36. I didn't expect this when I was just parsing out the text. Paul says in verse 36, you foolish person. And it means to be a chiding response. So we're going to answer that in a minute. Why why does Paul have that response? But he goes on to give an example from nature to explain the resurrection of believers. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Verse 37, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each seed its own body. Now, I have to say, just spoiler alert, I I think the reason Paul has such a chiding response is in light of who God is. Think of his character, omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful. He conducts the universe with ease. He makes black holes, and he knows every atom and every molecule in the world. So when we talk about raising someone from the dead, it's not hard for him. And I think that's what's driving Paul's response when he says, you foolish person. Why would you doubt that believers will be raised from the dead? But I do have a little bit of sympathy for the objector. I do have a little bit of sympathy, because let's be honest Death is a shocking thing to face. I don't mean to be crass, but I think sometimes we sanitize this topic and we we miss the force of the text. We don't like to talk about death. 
We put our funeral homes and our cemeteries on the edge of town along with our prisons because we don't want to see it and we don't want to think about it. And that's why I looked up a medical journal and I wanted to just ask myself, okay, we're talking about death. What, what is it? I've seen it. But what is it? Why would someone hear about the resurrection of the body and go, wow, how's that going to happen? Because of this. This is from a Medical News Today article. There are several signs that a body has begun its process of decomposition. Perhaps the three best known, often cited in crime dramas, are liver mortis, rigor mortis, and algal mortis. Liver mortis, or lividity, refers to the point at which a deceased person's body becomes very pale or ashen soon after death. This is due to the loss of blood circulation as the heart stops beating. In rigor mortis, the body becomes stiff and completely unpliable. All the muscles tense due to changes that occur in them at a cellular level. Rigor mortis settles in at two to six hours after death, and it can last 24 to 84 hours. After this, the muscles become limp and pliable once more, and another early process is that of algal mortis, which occurs when the body goes cold as it ceases to regulate its internal temperature. Other signs of decomposition include the body assuming a greenish tinge, skin coming off the body, marbling, and of course, putrefaction. So let's show a little bit of sympathy to the objector who says, how will the dead be raised? How will God do this? But Paul gives an example from nature. Back to verse 37. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. He's talking about putting seeds in the ground. What does a seed do before it grows? It decomposes. But God gives it, and so that it in verse 38, God gives it a body that he has chosen. What's the it? It's the exact same body that went into the ground. So you don't plant an apple seed here, and then the tree pops up over there. He's talking about the body that goes in the ground is the very self-same body that will be raised. And he also gives another example to make his case that indeed God will raise the dead. He says it's like a seed Goes in the ground, decomposes, but that self-same seed bears fruit. And, verse 39, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, Another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. What is Paul getting at? He's answering the question, how will the dead be raised? He goes, well, on the one hand, it's like a seed. It's shocking. It's ugly. It's scary. But a seed dies and bears fruit, the very same one. And if you're still wondering, what is the resurrection body? Does God really have a category of a resurrected body, a glorified body? Because we'll look around. Animals have a body. Stars are a certain kind of body, the sun. The whole world is filled with bodies, is what Paul is saying. He says, why is it so? Why would you be surprised that God would have a category called a resurrected body? It's a real thing. 
It's a real ontological reality. It's a real being. It's a thing, just like a body here, a body there. It's that kind of body. He says, we ought not be surprised when we say that believers will be raised from the dead. Beloved, God created the universe that is so big, it has to be measured in light years. I mean, think about that. Something that is so expansive that the only unit of measurement that actually makes sense is a light year. For him, that God who spoke it into being ex nihilo from nothing, for him to raise a body from the grave, no matter how far gone or when they died or how they died, it doesn't matter. Paul says, you ought not be surprised. Paul says this in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what when he returns? Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. How are you going to do that, Jesus? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The same power that runs the universe. It is not a hard thing to raise his people from the dead and to give them a body like his glorious body. So, beloved, when it comes to this whole idea of resurrection, why would we be surprised? And number two, why would we be worried? Why would we be worried? Look at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about believers, he's talking about us. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. You know, there's, a, there's an actual term called necrophobia. Necrophobia, some of you know what that means. It is an exaggerated fear of death. Someone who has an inordinate aversion to cemeteries or funeral homes or anything associated with death, or if they see a hearse driving down the road, they'll pull way over. Necrophobia. I think we've seen a lot of that the last year. There's a palpable fear in a lot of our neighborhoods and a lot of our workplaces and a lot of our friends and family that the last year has forced us to do what? To face the reality of uncertainty and the talk of death, the, uns the unspeakable thing. And yet, we as Christians, although we may fear the process of dying, I don't have some weird love affair with the idea of dying. I don't like pain. And as one theologian said, he goes, I don't know how about, I'm afraid of the process of dying because I've never done it before. But we ought not be afraid of the reality of death. We ought not be prone to necrophobia, not with these promises staring us in the face. 
What does he say about the resurrection body of believers? It says in verse 42 that what is sown is perishable. And just by way of a theological excursus, believers die now, their bodies remain on earth, but in the intermediate state, they, so their souls go immediately into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But there is at the end of the age, Christ will raise their bodies also. This is what we're talking about at that trumpet call. The living in Christ will be changed instantly, and the dead in Christ will rise. But for those who die before that day, what is sown is perishable. It is prone to death. It is prone to decay. It is prone to disease. It is temporal. You are one day closer to death now than you were Yesterday, there's a feel-good sermon for you. <laughs> but at the resurrection, beloved, the body that you will be raised in, the body that when I stand at the graveside and I eulogize and they lower it down, that body's coming out. And it's coming out imperishable. When we are raised, our bodies will be set free from the corrupting presence of sin, and those bodies, like our Lord's, will live forever. Verse 43, what is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. For the Jews, touching a corpse would cause them to become unclean. It is sown in dishonor. That's one thing as a pastor about funerals. That I, I love 1 Corinthians 15. Because I've, I've had to lay saints to rest that because of cancer or disease, the body that I saw in the casket was so emaciated, so languid, so thin. It was sown in dishonor. And I love this promise, but what is sown in dishonor, what is sown thin and emaciated and ravaged by disease will be raised in glory, beauty, and power. I dare say that one of the things that will increase our joy in the presence of our Lord in heaven is to look over and to see believers that the last time I saw you, cancer was eating you up. I could barely recognize you. And now look at that body. No disease, no sin, eternal glory. And I know that that's because of what Jesus did, and he's right there on the throne. So I glance over at brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so, and they were shining like the sun. And I know it's because because of Christ. So all of that then goes back to him. And I say, glory to the lamb on the throne who is worthy to be praised. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Look what you've done. You've brought your brothers home. You'll never get bored in heaven. You look right. You look left. You look around. There is every reason to praise the lamb on the throne. And one of those is when you see your fellow believers and every tinge of sin and decay is eradicated. Oh, efface the mark of Adam, erase it all, and in its place give us the mark of the man of heaven. But that's verse 49, so we've got to slow down. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. Verse 43 again, 
What is sown in weakness, oh, this is good news, saint. What is sown in weakness, not physical weakness. We already talked about that. This is moral weakness. What is sown, one of the things walking with saints as they walk with Jesus year after year, you know what I hear? It's not so much about financial struggles and even disease. The thing I can't wait for is to be set free from sin. Oh, that day when free from sinning, when I see his lovely face, I have talked to so many elderly saints that say, disease is one thing, but I can't wait to where every remnant of sin and distraction and lust and jealousy, it's all gone, and I can just worship my Lord undistracted. That's what he's talking about. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. Right now, we are all passe peccator. It is possible to sin. But in the resurrection body and in the eternal state with our Lord at his coming, it will be non passe peccator. It will not be possible to sin. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. And finally, 44, what is sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. Beloved, these current bodies are not ready to enter into the eternal state. We're not ready. Remember that old kid's song? We sing it at Christmas sometimes. And fit us for heaven to live with thee there. One of the things we need is a glorified body that's fit for the eternal state. And that's exactly what our Lord will do. What is sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. Doesn't mean it's ethereal. You're not going to be a ghost floating around. No, no, no. The Christian faith is pro-physical. Jesus rose in a body and he ate food in that body. I don't know how that works. But our text is very clear that we'll be like him. Will I recognize other believers in heaven? A yeah. Not only will you recognize them, but they're going to be so beautiful. Matthew 13, 43, Jesus said, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Many Christians are fearful about the process of dying. I get that. But in light of these promises, beloved, we need not fear the reality of dying. What's the worst thing that can happen in this life? Well, they'll kill us. Sort of. But our Lord will raise us up. We are a bizarre people, sorrowful in a million ways. But when you have the promise of resurrection, you're nauseatingly joyful, aren't you? What's the worst that could happen? We die? My soul goes to be with my Lord? He raises my body later. Win-win. Is it any wonder that the resurrection, the believer's resurrection, was one of Paul's main motivations in ministry? Philippians 3, 8, and 11, Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We like that verse. What motivates that kind of radical living? Verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This is a critical doctrine. It's not just an Easter thing. It's a Monday through Friday thing. 
Why would we be surprised that our Lord can do this? Why would we be worried? Not about the process of dying, but about the reality of it. And finally, especially if you know you came in today not a Christian, not trusting in Christ, please hear me. Number three, why would we be so foolish? Why would we be foolish? Look at verse 44 again. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam that we sung about, which I loved, good job, guys, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Okay, pause. Is he saying that he's contrasting Adam with Jesus? He did that back in verses 20 and 21 of 1 Corinthians 15. He does it in Romans 5. There's the first Adam, the man of the earth, represents all of humanity, fallen humanity. Christ is the last Adam who represents his redeemed people, the elect. But is he saying that Adam was a physical person, which he was, but then the second Adam is a life-giving spirit, like Jesus didn't have a body? That's not, that would undo all of Paul's preaching and teaching. That's not what he's saying. Now, what is he saying? No. He's merely saying that Adam represents the natural fallen man, temporal, prone to decay. Jesus, the last Adam, is a life-giving spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one, by union with him, that raises his people from the dead. Let's continue on. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. In Adam we all die. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Beloved, a couple of points of application here of this Adam and Christ comparison. Only Christ gives the hope of a resurrected body in glory. There is no other way. Notice there is a deafening silence in this last part of the passage. If you came in trusting in self, Buddha, Muhammad, New Age spirituality, the God within, some spark of the divine. Anything other than the man from Nazareth, the God-man, Jesus Christ, you will die without hope. And there will be a resurrection for you, but it won't be a good one. There's a deafening silence here that says we are all of Adam. There are two categories in humanity, whether you're in Mongolia or Alberta or Brazil or America. Humans fall into two categories. Those who are in Adam, fallen, under judgment, and those who repent of their sins and by faith come to the second Adam who represents his people, and all the promises are yes and amen in him, there are those that are in the second Adam. 
That's what the text is driving at. So Paul is making a plea. It is the height of foolishness to recognize on the one hand that death is inescapable. There is a 100% mortality rate in this world. Though we try to fight against it with medicine and makeup and a million other fitness things, it doesn't matter. It is the height of arrogance and foolishness to trust in anything other than the only one who has conquered the grave, and that is Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. St. Augustine said this, There is one man unto life, and there is one unto death. The one, Adam, is only man. The other, Jesus Christ, is God and man. Through the one, the world was made the enemy of God, but through the other, those chosen from the world are reconciled to God. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Therefore, even as we have borne the image of the earthly, let us also bear the image of the heavenly. Beloved, as I look at this text, I ask three questions. When we speak of the resurrection, why would we be surprised that our Lord could do this? Why would we be worried in light of this reality? But finally, and I want to press this point home, why would we be foolish? Death is coming for us all. We know not the hour. You're thinking, oh, you're doing the thing where you're just trying to scare me. Yep. Because I'd rather you get mad at me now and go to heaven. Because when the officer calls and asks if I can go with him to tell your family what happened, it's too late. Despite modern man's medical advances and claims to personal sovereignty, no one can escape death. It is the constant gnawing reality that chafes a culture that idolizes youth and beauty and comfort and security. The ugliness of death is what moves us to relegate our funeral homes and our cemeteries to the farthest edge of town, out of sight and out of mind. One theologian said, death is the great evangelist. Every time you drive by a cemetery, it preaches a sermon that says, go to Christ. Go to Christ. Go to the only one who conquered this whole thing. Go to the only one that gives the promise of resurrection unto life. Resurrection unto joy rather than resurrection unto judgment. To those who joined us today, either in person or online, who know this is the first time I've really been dealing with this whole idea of being a Christian, or maybe you've grown up in church, but you know you've been far from Christ. I plead with you. I plead with you. Come to Jesus Christ. Do not face the unknown of death, trusting in yourself or anything else. 
Go back to the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, that this Jesus Christ was dead, he was buried, he rose, and he ascended. And it is in his name alone that pardon for sin is offered to sinful men. And he comes to you through his word today. And I would plead with you, I would plead with you, don't put it off. Don't do the thing. We say, I'll get right with God later. Don't be so foolish. You die today, you die in Adam and without hope. But in Christ Jesus, there is joy unspeakable. To my fellow believers, unless Christ returns in our lifetime, and I hope he does, you will enter the grave. Myself, Pastor Redberg, Pastor Harrison may very well preach your funeral one day. But death will not have the final word over you. It will not have the final word. It will not mock you forever. You may go to the grave emaciated from disease, but hear me, you're coming out shining like the sun, courtesy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like your Lord, you will be raised in beauty and glory and power and honor so that we can sing that old hymn from 1832, It Is Not Death to Die. Because of Christ's resurrection, beloved, we should not be surprised. We should not be worried. And we dare not be foolish. Come to Christ today. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life in every meaning of that word.